Well, have you ever wondered why there are so many different churches in Kingsburg, in America, around the world? In in the Protestant line of churches, uh, globally, there are conservatively around 9,000 different, not churches, denominations. 9,000 different denominations. Some have claimed that if you take into consideration the cultural differences and the independent nature of many of these Protestant churches, the number actually falls somewhere around between 30,000 to 40,000 different churches. Now, whether or not these statistics are true or accurate, one thing that we can all agree on is that there is a way too much division in the church. Amen? And and, and we can all agree on this too, that within the local church, there is often a way too much division and disunity. And so we have denominational disunity, but we also have to face the reality that in a local church, there is often disunity as well. And I want to suggest this morning that disunity is at the core, disunity is really at its core a worship issue. You and I have been created by God to worship God. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, and with all our strength. And when there's division in the church, when there's disunity in the local church, we are in trouble in the issue in the arena of truly worshiping God. In fact, as we come to the Old Testament of Deuteronomy, and this is all just to set the scene this morning for our text, but if we come to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy to the great Shema that every, uh, every religious Jew recites as he wakes in the morning, it says this, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. One. Why is that so important? Well, because when Moses stated these words under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, at the time he made this statement, every other nation in the world at that time were polytheists. That means they worshipped many gods. But there's only one true God. And here's another reason why that's so important. Because if there's only one true God, then it is possible for us to actually do what Deuteronomy 6 and verse 5 says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. If there are a duplicity, a a numerous amount of gods to bow down to, which one do you give allegiance to? And how much allegiance do you give to them? Again, let me state this, now that you understand something of why disunity comes in churches, it's because there is more than one God. And when we bow down to different gods, whether that God is your opinion, uh, whether that God is your allegiance to a particular man or a particular woman or a particular faction or group of people, at the end of the day, we wreck the fabric, we tear the fabric of the unity of the church which Jesus died for and shed his blood for. Beloved, we have been called to be one Jesus prayed, Father, make them one as we are one. 
And when we fall into the trap of division and disunity, we violate the first of the Ten Commandments, which states, you shall have no other gods before me. This is a foundational problem in the church. It's a foundational problem in the Corinthian church. And if you've got your Bibles, why don't you take them and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In fact, it's such an issue, it was so of such importance to the Apostle Paul that as he pens this, this letter to one of the most divided churches in the New Testament era, he spends four chapters dealing with the issue of disunity. So please turn, flick, swipe, whatever it is you've got in front of you. If you need a Bible, there's one in the back of the seat or under the seat somewhere around you. Find one, snuggle up to someone, do whatever you've got to do. Let's get to the Word. And read with me 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 10, Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me of Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is this, that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one would say that you were baptized in my name. Oh, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. And beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Let's pray. God, would you open this passage to our hearts? By your Spirit, would you speak and minister to us that we might be a congregation, a flock, a body of your people that, Father, are always aware of the danger of disunity. We might pursue unity as brothers and sisters in Christ. We might seek your blessing. So lead us through this passage. Teach us, instruct us, guide us, encourage us, strengthen us, we pray. And we ask this in the name of our precious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as there were divisions in the church at Corinth, so there are divisions in the church today. And you might be sitting there going, does he know something we don't? (laughs) I'm not speaking on this passage because I think there are divisions in this church. I've only been here three weeks. I might even create one or two divisions. But whether it concerns favoritism, and you think of the church as a whole, whether it concerns favoritism, church polity, philosophy of ministry, where where, where we stand on things like social justice or critical race theory or COVID restrictions, vaccinations, masks, no masks, whatever it is, men and women's roles, you could add that in there, modesty, immodesty, divorce, remarriage, parenting, the list just goes on and on and on. 
And the point is that there are numerous challenges that are capable of sowing discord and disunity in the local church. And I want to highlight this morning for you three steps that I believe Paul's laying out here that are required in striving for unity so that the church can be glorified, so that God can be glorified right here in the church of the valley, Grace Church of the Valley. And the three, the three steps are simply this. I'll give them to you right up the front. Heed or listen to the appeal of unity. Secondly, identify the obstacles of unity and then apply the means for unity. That's it, simple. You with me? Are you with me? Amen, good. If you're wondering where this sound comes from, it originated in New Zealand and I've been working on it for a lot of years. So just so you don't make the mistake of calling me an Australian. You know what I mean by that, huh? Thank you, Jack. You've run the race before me, good man. Well, the first step to unity is found right there in verse 10. It says, now I exhort you, brethren. I love the tone of this exhortation. It's an informal, if you like, appeal from the heart of a pastor. The word exhort here is the word parakaleo. It means to call alongside. And what Paul is doing is he's coming alongside them and he's calling them to something. He's putting himself in this mix as well, as we will see. He's, a, he's operating here by a gospel principle, which is to speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15. Why is this so important for Paul to mention? Because if he leaves them in their divided state, and you better believe it, this church was divided on almost every possible issue. If he leaves them there, then Paul would be acting towards that church in an unloving way. And so he finds himself here lovingly exhorting his brothers and sisters in the family of God. However, notice here in verse 10 that he appeals to them with, yes, come along, coming alongside them, but there's a seriousness in his appeal. He invokes here the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in doing so, he exercises his apostolic authority. Though the issue is a family matter, it's also a serious matter. Hopefully you've already gained that, as we've begun to talk about this being a worship issue. Now, the basis of all unity and the progress of the local church is the believer's willingness to submit to all that Jesus is and his person, being, his nature, and all that Jesus instructs us to. The task of being a shepherd in the local church is a task, really, you could sum it up in this way, it's a task of exhortation by way of instructing others in the hope that they too will consider seriously the weightiness of their faith in Jesus Christ. That they will seriously consider whom it is that they represent, that they are ambassadors in a foreign land that they represent the glory and the honor of none other than the God of the universe. And as shepherds, when we have to deal with division, we need to strive for this same balance that Paul shows here, a balance of tenderness along with the solemn authoritative instruction of the word of God. Because to be overly tender and ignore the issue that's right in front of you is to pass over the truth. You don't want to do that because God is truth. 
And to be overly authoritarian on the other side of the, this, this coin when shepherding people and to, press, uh, and to press the listener to do something based on some kind of authoritative position lacks love. And it means that as shepherds, we lose a hearing. And when you lose a hearing, you lose the ability to help that person change and grow into the likeness of Christ. So if you're a youth leader here, if you're an elder here this morning, that's, that's the balance you need. But notice how Paul goes about the issue of disunity in this church. First, he instructs them, notice this, he instructs them to agree. And to agree literally means to speak the same thing. How do we do this? Well, we do this by submitting ourselves to the authority, the person, and the purposes of the Lord Jesus Christ. We must learn, as Paul says to the Corinthians later on, to take every thought captive to Christ. You and I, if you're a believer here this morning, have been given the mind of Christ. You've been given the word of God. You've been given the Holy Spirit of truth. He dwells in you. He abides in you. And, and that truth, that reality, that mind, that new life is what you are submitting yourself to. You are literally to be filled and controlled by God through the Spirit on the basis of the word that he's revealed. So to speak the same or to agree is to be in harmony with one another rather than relationally talking past each other because we're so intent on getting what we believe is the truth out. Rather than talking past each other, rather than being offended by one another, we are to walk in harmony with one another in Christ. Now back in verse nine, Cast your eyes back up there. Paul describes this church. He calls this group of people in Corinth who are so divided a church. But he says this in verse 9. He says, God is, is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship, into the fellowship of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we are to agree about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We are to agree that Jesus Christ is the full expression of the truth. He is God in human flesh. God incarnates. In him dwells the glories of God. If you want to know who God is, look at Jesus Christ. What saddens me about those who are caught up in, in Mormon teaching is that they're waiting for the day to meet God. Jesus is God. I and the Father are one. Jesus came as the full expression, Colossians says, of the deity in bodily form. He is God in human flesh. You want to know who God is? Examine the person of Jesus Christ. Now, he's not saying in this verse that as believers, we must always agree. That we must agree on everything in the Bible without exception. Be, let's be honest, there are some things, even the Apostle Peter said this of Paul's writings, he said there are some things which are difficult to understand. There are some things that you might not even know to agree on, just a lack of understanding, a lack of knowledge, and that's okay. There are texts that, as we examine them historically and grammatically and, and take them literally and we look at them, the, the, the text itself grammatically gives us perhaps a couple of options. 
A couple of ways we can interpret that. That's why some of our English Bibles lean one way and lean a little bit the other way. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. There is some space here in the nuances of the Scripture. Now, what Paul is writing here to this church is, is he's writing and, 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 he's, and he's talking in the context. If you look at the context here that we just read through, he's talking about dividing over church leaders. And there's a reason for that, and we're going to get into that here in a little bit. But he's talking about a kind of a disagreement amongst the church, which was a partisan spirit, a sort of a political mindset, if you like. Well, I'm of Paul, and I follow Apollos, and I follow Cephas, and there's another group, they say, well, I follow Christ. Paul says, this shouldn't be this way. This is not right. But as I look at this passage, I also think that this call to agree the call to come and submit to Christ and be under him is, is it's a priority issue because he spends so much time on it, but it's also the foundation of every other issue he addresses in this book. The divisions in Corinth, as I said, were many. There were divisions over the teaching regarding morality. There were lawsuit teaching, division over lawsuits against believers. There was division over marriage, over meat that was offered uh, to idols in the temple eating that meat. There was division over the conduct of women in the church. There was division over the Lord's Supper. There was division over spiritual gifts and the resurrection, and the list goes on. And I would just say this this morning. If there is not a desire in your heart right now as a believer to, to agree with other believers, you're on dangerous ground. We need to bring our thoughts and our desires in line with the mind of Christ and the person of Christ. And for the, we do this for the sake of Christ. Paul is saying this, I want you to think, I want you to speak, and I want you to act in such a way as a church that you honor Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. GCV needs to value and honor Christ by valuing and honoring our combined union in Him and by seeking harmony with each other in Christ over and above our own desires and our own opinions. And when that's the case, when that's true in your heart and in my heart, what we discover is that divisions evaporate like the steam of coffee. It just goes away. Secondly, as he's dealing with this, he instructs them and he says, there are to be no divisions among you. Yes, you must agree, but there are to be no divisions. You could say the agreement is internal. This, this next is kind of out, ex, external. They were to mend the brokenness of their relationships. The Greek word here for divisions is the word schismata, from which we get the English word schism. A schism is a division. It's a separation. It's a tearing of the cloth. And it brings... And it speaks to, in relationships, it speaks to discord and to disharmony. And Paul's calling these believers, look, you need to walk in harmony. You need to walk in unity. You're dishonoring the Lord. Now, he's not saying you're to be a bunch of clones. He's not saying you're to disengage your minds and never question things. Questions actually can be very helpful, can't they, when they are presented in the right way. But in the local church, he wants the flock to see that there are a body of men 
And in his case, he was the founder of the church. Paul had founded this church in Corinth. He was the apostle. He had laid that foundation and he installed a group of men there to oversee the church. And he's saying here, I want you to see that the elders of this church are a plurality of men operating under one God. You see, elders are given to the church by God to lead the church and to make decisions for the church theologically. And at GCV, that works out where in the elder board, there is no decision for the good of the church that's made by one elder alone or, or a decision that's made when the elders are divided. No, we just put that on hold. We pray about it. We, we wrestle with it. We come to a point where as a body of men, uh, we, we get to this point where we say, you know what? We're, we're absolutely unanimous. This is the way we should go. And sometimes as an elder, that just means that you know what, I wouldn't have necessarily gone this way, but the Lord has tempered my thoughts, my opinions, my understanding of the issue, and in the light of this greater body, I can be 100% wholeheartedly supportive of that decision. Again, God has given the church all it needs to be unified. He's given us the headship of Christ. He's given us the indwelling spirit of truth. He's given us the unchanging word of God. He's given us a plurality of godly leadership. And the directive in this letter is you need to be a submissive congregation. Ouch. We don't like that word. But it's so critical to unity, isn't it? And so thirdly, he calls them to communicate so that they are on the same page. He says, but that you would be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, the verb here that you would be to be is in the, what we call the subjunctive mood. It means nothing to you, and I don't normally go into all this Greek stuff, but it's really helpful sometimes. But it just means that this verb is in the mood of possibility. It's, Paul is saying, this is objectively possible. You know, some people will say, unity in the church? I don't think so. That's not possible. Paul says, no, no, it's possible. It's absolutely possible. And in fact, the title of this sermon is Striving for Unity. We should strive for what God has made possible for us. What were they to be? They were to be united how are they to be united and made complete by allowing Christ to bring them into line through his spirit to his word? What does all that mean? Well, it means Paul here is directing the believers to position themselves before God in such a way that they would be changed in their thinking and conformed into the likeness and the image of Christ. That's Romans 8, isn't it? That's his entire purpose in your life as a Christian. God is right now in the business of changing you. He's changing you. If you want to become a Christian and not change, you don't understand what God's in, in the business of. He's in the business of transformation. He wants to take you from one, one level of glory to another. He wants to conform you from one level of Christ-likeness to a greater level of Christ-likeness. And one day, he's going to change us all completely and present us spotless and without fault in his glorious presence. Hallelujah. Can't wait for that day. Dear believer, you are to constantly be seeking and pursuing and striving to be unified in gospel truth in the person of Christ, to think as Christ thinks, to do as Christ would want you to. Paul is laying down here a pathway towards unity, and that pathway includes agreement. It includes mended relationship. It includes the intentional aspect of harmonious life together in a Christ 
centered context called the church. We see this in the early church. We really do. If you go to Acts chapter 4 and verses 31 to 32, it says, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken, and they were all filled under the control of the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the word of God. Now, the full number of those who were saved were of one heart and one soul, and they had everything in common. That's unity. In Romans 15 verse 5, Paul states, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. You see that link? It's not just finding a common denominator and everybody sort of submitting to that. No, it's one mind according to Christ. And he's the only perfect one. He's the only one who has complete and full knowledge. He's the only one who can address every question and issue of the human hearts. And so we come to him and submit to him. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians 4, 3 through 6, that as believers, we are to be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Philippians 1.27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Or Philippians 2, chapter, chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, make my joy complete, Paul says, how by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness and empty conceits, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Wow. These are profound words. Listen to me, listen. If we... If we can't create peace and unity, which we can't because it's already created for us, Jesus is our peace. He's the source of our peace. He's the one, as I said, who can deal with the issues of our thought life and so on and bring them together. But if, if we can't create that, which we can't, then, then we, can either, we can either maintain it or we can destroy it as human beings. You can do that. You can either maintain the peace that we already have, the unity we already have in Christ, or you can destroy it. You see, there's only one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and one Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. By the way, I take this passage in Philippians 2 and I apply it in a marriage situation. Uh, If I was to ask you to put your hand up this morning, how many of you are monotheists? How many of you married couples are monotheists? That means you believe in one God. I would say every married couple in this church would put their hand up. If not, come see me afterwards. Right? We say we're monotheists. But in practicality, when we get into an argument and a conflict in our marriage and we become divided in the home, that's really a testimony that we're no longer monotheists. We're now bowing down and worshiping at the shrine of another God. It could be the God of your opinion over and against your husband's opinion or your wife's opinion. Or it could be a voice that's coming in through social media and you want to go a particular way and your, your spouse is saying, no, I don't think that's the right way. And before long, there's this huge eruption and you're attacking one another and that just means you've become polytheists. One of you or both of you, it could be. 
You see, when there are different views of the way that we look at the world and different views of the way we're supposed to be as people, as Christians, and different views of the way we are supposed to operate, then there's no room given for unity. And that's exactly what was going on in Corinth. They needed to see life as God sees it. They needed to come to the same conclusions that the Lord lays down in the gospel of his son, and they needed to submit their lives to that. And if they would only do that, then there would be peace, there would be harmony, there would be unity. And that's true in every marriage. If a wife and a husband who can't agree say, you know what, let's submit ourselves to the word of God. Let's study the word. Let's submit ourselves to the word. Let's ask the Lord Jesus Christ to help us have a united mind from the truth that he has revealed concerning this matter then you will find peace in your home and unity. Well, that brings us to the second step of unity. Unity is found in identifying the obstacles here, and Paul does that. What are the obstacles? Firstly, he reveals that in verse 11. He says, for I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Chloe by, was some kind of wealthy woman, it appears, who uh, had workers maybe going backwards and forwards between Ephesus and Corinth, where Paul was in Ephesus, and he's writing this to Corinth. And they were telling him, hey, these guys, they're not only disagreeing, they're actually fighting one another. I've been in elder board meetings where I've seen fifth, people take fists to one another. That's really sad. If you're in a church like that, leave. <laughs> if those guys can't agree, you're in big trouble. But I've seen it in the church too. I've seen it where people become so uh, alienated from one another, so angry towards one another that they do things that are just unhealthy. And this is what's going on in, in the church of Corinth. And so Paul's addressing this with them. He's saying, look, I've he- I hear there are quarrels. I hear there are schisms. I hear there is, there's this division. There's this, this fighting going on among you. And James tells us that that's the issue. That's the issue we all face. What causes, he says, quarrels and fights among you? He says, is, is it not your passions? Behind those quarrels, that outward quarreling, there is a heart. And that heart, he says, is, has a passion, a desire. Uh, he says, you desire and you don't have, so you murder, you covet, you cannot obtain. So you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. What's the issue behind quarreling? The issue is selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. Paul put it this way in Romans 16, 17, he said, watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching that you have learned. Why are there false teachers, you might ask? Well, Paul makes it clear. False teachers exist for one purpose. They want you to follow them. They don't want you following Christ. They want you following them. I want you to follow Christ. I will do, I'm a bond servant in this church before God to help you follow Christ. It's my responsibility. But a false teacher, well, he wants to get rich. He wants to become famous. He wants to be important. And so he distorts the scripture to appeal to people's desires, their fleshly desires, and he gets them on board, and when he gets all that money, he's become something in his own mind. He says, Paul says, keep away from such men, because such people are not serving Christ, but they're serving their own appetites. Well, what's behind this quarreling in Corinth? Well, verse 12 tells us there was a party spirit. 
He said, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, which is Aramaic for Peter, or I follow Christ. Now, we need to be clear at this point that this is not testifying to different doctrines being taught by these men. Paul, Apollos, Peter, Jesus, <laughs> all taught the same doctrines. So actually, this wasn't even a doctrinal issue. However, these men were very differently gifted. And Paul was a brilliant thinker, and he was, he was a man who had suffered much and was despised by the Judaizers because of his knowledge and understanding of God. Peter was, on the other hand, was seen as, as kind of the standard of orthodoxy in the Jerusalem church and flowing out from there. Paulus, we learn in Acts, was a man who was eloquent in speech. And all of these men had had some kind of input into the life of the church in Corinth. And the Corinthians were elevating one over the other, depending on who they considered would help them in their own identity and progress in life. This is really key. Don't miss this. In, 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 the, in, the, in the culture of Corinth, the way you got ahead in life was by who you associated with. And so this whole concept of partisanship in, in the culture, you know, the, the, the poor people couldn't afford to go and sit under, uh, let's say, a Gamaliel-type man, a, 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 a philosopher who was maybe a, a well-known philosopher, so he would have to go to this guy over here, and before long, you have this fracturedness across the culture, and this has come right into the church, and people were saying, well, I'm of Apollos, because, you know, I... I'm someone really important. And others are saying, well, I'm of Peter. I'm, I'm really important down there. You know, he's, he's the mainstay in Jerusalem, the church of Jerusalem. Well, I'm of Paul. I mean, think about this man. He's done more than all the others. He's a church planner. He, he's really, he's gone out. He's taken the, you know, people were just associating themselves with men. And they did this with Christ too. They were all vying for, for position, for status. You could say this, you could say that patronage, this idea of attaching yourself to a philosopher or a teacher is an attempt at self-validation. You self-validate by the means of someone else's successes. Does that sound familiar in this culture? Sure does. What was going on in Corinth goes on every day in America. In other words, the most prestigious, the wealthiest, uh, the, the upper class, the more honored my patron is, the, and the more I associate with them, I too will then be honored and validated. I too will be lifted up. I too will be viewed as someone extremely important and valuable and worthy and praiseworthy. Paul goes, no, this is, don't let this happen in the church. On the church front, we've celebrated pastors and popular musicians, and people flock to these because they, they get their ears tickled, and they feel good about it, and they can say, you know, I, hey, I sat under the ministry of this guy, I, I trained in this place, and, and, and they get their validation from where they train. That's just so wrong. I want you to, I, I want you to understand that. I, I don't care who stands in the pulpit here, I care about what they do in the pulpit, 
Do they preach the truth or not the truth? And yes, it's important that you choose to go to a good school, educational school. It's important you do that. I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about gaining your validation from a name, from a person, from an institution. I chose to travel halfway around the world to be trained by the men at the Master's Seminary, but it didn't validate me. It certainly helped me. It didn't validate me. My validation is in who? Christ. (laughs) And notice the Corinthians even turned Jesus Christ himself into another celebrity teacher among many. And the point is that Jesus isn't interested in being a celebrity and giving pa- patro- getting patronage from us to him. He's interested rather in being our Lord and Savior, and he's seeking those who will obey him and follow him. And so Christianity should be the end of self-identity building because Jesus Christ is all in all who come to him in faith. You can't, you can't be more secured, you can't be more validated, if you want to put it that way, than to be in Christ. But that's not what we're doing. See, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm a wretch. I'll never lose that knowledge. But I also know this. I know that Jesus Christ saved me, that he secured me, that he's transformed me. He's given me a new heart and a new mind and a new nature. And all the glory goes to him. I did nothing to get any of that. Nothing. The day I got saved, I was at the darkest, deepest level of my sinfulness and wretchedness. And at the point of my conversion, 30 minutes later, I'm walking and serving and honoring Jesus Christ. And I don't care about my name anymore. I don't care what people think of me. I went back home to my family and I sat down with my parents and I humbled myself and and just said to them, I'm sorry, I've, I've messed up. I've hated you, I've lied to you, I've stolen from you. I am a wretch, I am the worst of the worst. I told my mom, mom, there's been times where I've, I've even plotted in my mind how I might destroy you and kill you. I was an angry, bitter, jealous young man, full of every vice and lust, 18 years of age. And God changed all that, just like that, through Christ. So I don't, need, I don't care what people think of me. What I care about is am I doing what God's called me to do? Am I walking in his way? Am I being true to the word he's revealed? And am I honoring my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Paul exposes the issue. He says there are three things about Christ uh, that you need to know. And he asks these by rhetorical question. First of all, he says, is Christ divided? Verse 13, what's the answer to that? It's an emphatic no. Christ is not divided. You see, if you get into patronage, you're dividing Christ. The word divided here means that Jesus was split up into different pieces. This is just a grotesque idea, and it has to be rejected. Christ gave his all for all who will come to him in faith. And the gospel preached by Paul was Christ 
in all his being crucified for you and for me. Paul didn't come and preach one part of Christ, and Paulus come and preach another part of Christ, and Peter preach another part of Christ. They all preached Christ and Him crucified. One Lord, one Savior, one Redeemer. Christ, the righteous one. And so disunity in the church violates the basic principle of the oneness of the nature and being of God. That's why it's a worship issue. There's no division between the three persons of the Godhead. They're all one in essence. Wherever the Son's acting, the Father's acting, and the Spirit's acting. Wherever the Spirit's manifesting, the Father's there and the Son's there. They're all working together in perfect and complete harmony. And Paul goes on, he says, was I crucified for you? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? And again, what's the answer? An emphatic no. Christ alone paid the penalty for your sin. No man can redeem another. No man can, who's born of Adam is perfect enough to be a sacrifice acceptable to a perfect and holy God on behalf of another's sins. Only Jesus Christ can cover your sin. Only Jesus Christ can forgive your sin. Only Jesus Christ can atone for your sin. He is the perfect man, not born of Adam, but born of the Spirit. He is the perfect man who came and lived an absolutely perfect life. And as that man went to the cross, not because men forced him there, but he went there to offer himself up as that sacrificial lamb on your behalf, an an offering to God to appease, to satisfy, to atone for God's righteousness and holiness and judgment against us. We deserved to die because the wages of sin is death. We deserve to go to hell because because there's no other place you can go. Hell is, is a place where you're separated from God for all eternity. We deserved that. And yet Jesus, out of a great love, And the Father, out of a great love for us, came and gave his life to save us. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also died for our sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. 1 Peter 3.18, once for all. We don't crucify Jesus over and over again. He's died once. That death is sufficient to cover all who come in faith and repentance and submit themselves to him. So no, Paul did not die for you. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Well, of course not. They knew that. Christ alone is the Christian's identity. Baptism is is by, in in its essence, it's the identification of a human being to the finished work and the person of Jesus Christ. It's saying, my allegiance in life is no longer to the gods of this world. I will not bow down to Caesar. I will not bow down to the lusts and the desires of my flesh. I will not bow down to any who claim they are God but Jesus Christ alone. Baptism is dying to self, going under the water, rising again in the newness of life that you've received with Christ, and now your allegiance is to him 100%. And so we clearly see Paul is saying the partisanship is making a mockery of the Lord Jesus and his work. And just to emphasize the point, he says in verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. The next statement makes it clear that the one doing the baptizing is absolutely inconsequential. 
I love this about the way this is written because it helps us understand a little bit about the inspiration of the scriptures. He says, now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whom I baptized, uh, if I baptized any other. And Paul's just saying, listen, it's inconsequential. I might have baptized someone else, but it's so inconsequential, I can't even remember it. He didn't even keep a record of who he baptized. Look, it's just wrong. It's just wrong to identify any man's name with your baptism other than the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you do so, you've set yourself up as a divisive faction in the body of Christ. I've read accounts about people who have been baptized by certain preachers using special water, usually from the Jordan River. Apparently that's more holy than the water here in the the valley or wherever. On a special day, as though the day really mattered. What are they doing? Are they honoring Jesus in that? I don't think so. They're honoring external things. They're honoring men. They're not honoring Christ. Who saved them? Who gave them new life? Who brought them back into reconciliation with the God that they hated and offended every day of their life? Who's the one that gave everything to save them? Jesus Christ is. Then get baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So we need to be striving for unity in the church. We need to heed the appeal. We need to identify the obstacles. And finally, verse 17 We need to apply the means of unity. In verse 17, Paul gives us the reason for the directives of verses 14 to 16. Look at what it says, verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. In other words, the gospel of Christ alone is the means of peace and unity amongst the believer. And and, and that's how it has to be in this church. Hopefully, you're here today not to hear Andy Woodfield. Hopefully, you're here today, for those of you who are visiting because of me, I'm sorry, I just offended you. But hopefully you're not here for me. Hopefully you're here for the Lord Jesus Christ. Hopefully you came this morning as I did to want to exalt and honor and lift up the name of Christ in song and prayer through the preaching of the word. Paul reminds his readers that he was commissioned to the priority of heralding the good news. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. You could say Jesus is the way to God. Jesus is the truth about God. Jesus is the life of God. He came in the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets who spoke of him, the Messiah, the Christ, coming as the Savior, the Redeemer of the world. If you don't know him, you're outside of the blessing of God. Romans tells us you're under condemnation. You're awaiting judgment. You're on death row. And yet God sent his son to death row and he said, come follow me. I'll lead you out of here. You'll never have to die for your sin. You'll never have to endure the righteous judgment of God against you. You just come with me, follow me. I've died for you. I've paid the price. I've already been in the death chair for you. Finally, Paul addresses those who are enamored by rhetorical prowess and eloquence and human wisdom. And he states this. He said, I was sent to preach the good news, not in cleverness of speech. Why? 
so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. The Corinthian culture context was what's driving all of this, and he said, you don't, you don't need to follow some guy who's super eloquent or who has some great prowess over the language or who's done some great and mighty thing for God. You just need to follow Christ. You need to come to him in faith and repentance. You know, faith has to have the right object in order to be saving faith, doesn't it? Lots of people have faith, have faith in all kinds of crazy things, but saving faith is a faith that is putting one's trust in, completely trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ and the person of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's what saving faith is. It's, it's, it's the turning from trusting my, my own sinful, selfish thoughts and ways and opinions and turning to Christ and saying, God, I surrender. I, I entrust myself, my life, everything about me, I entrust it completely to you. If you'll do that, the Bible says you'll be born again of the Spirit. You'll receive new life. You'll have the hope of eternal life. You'll have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, reserved in heaven for you. you you'll be elevated and in position before God to the right hand of God, sitting with Christ in the heavenly places. You'll be given every blessing in the, in the heavenly places. Every blessing will be yours. There's just no limit to this. God's grace is so abundant, so super abounding. It's so rich. It's so full. So come to Christ. Put your faith in him, not in your good works, not in the church you attend, not in the guy you listen to online. Put your faith in him. Don't, put, don't even put your faith in a prayer you prayed. Don't even put your faith in being baptized. Baptize, baptism doesn't save you. It's just an outward expression of what God has already done in your life. Well, my time's gone. Let me wrap this up here. What are some practical implications from this text for Grace Church of the Valley? Number one, don't seek your identity and meaning in life through your association with other people. Seek rather to die and live for Christ. Notice I said die and live for Christ. Because living for Christ is a death every day. It's dying to self every day. Present context. I'm dying to self uh, today I'm living for Christ. Secondly, there will be no unity and peace in relationships in the church and in this life without the Prince of Peace inhabiting the throne of our hearts and by his grace leading us to trust him, that he's the one who brings unity, he's the one who restores peace, he's the one who is a, uh, sufficient to give us what he rightly created us to be, the children of God for the praise and the glory of his name. Thirdly, the church is to be heaven's outpost of unity and peace and comfort, reflecting exactly what heaven's meant to be like, although we fall short and we acknowledge that. Keeps us humble. Fourthly, true worship of God is expressed most effectively in and through our relational unity, which is the overflow of our union in Christ. Fifthly, the effectiveness and power of the cross is that through death to self comes life. True power, God's power, is manifested in lives that are meek and humble, that are broken and contrite. Sixthly, self-interest must be laid aside for self-sacrifice and lives that exist for the praise and glory of God. And lastly, Christian relationships are built upon and sustained through unconditional love 
for, firstly, the God who loved us unconditionally, and secondly, for our unconditional love towards one another. See, I'm new here, so I don't know what kind of person you are. I don't have any way of measuring how bad you've been, how difficult you are, (laughs) what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are. And quite frankly, I shouldn't ever do that. I should just love you as Christ has loved you. I should just say, hey, I'm here. If you want help, you want encouragement, I'm here to give it. If you want truth, I'm here to give it. You've heard it this morning. That should be my mindset. That should be our mindset of every person in this room. Oh, but that brother offended me. Well, that sister, oh, they said that nasty thing about me. And you know, I don't, don't, you know, listen. If you know that, go to them. Just go to them and sit down and say, hey, would you help me understand what it is about me that's messed with you, that's offended you, that's hurt you? That's the way. See, down is up and up is down in God's kingdom. And so may God help Grace Church of the Valley to strive for unity. Let me tell you why I did this message. I did this message today, not because I see disunity, but because I know that if we don't strive for unity, it won't be long before there's division in our midst. So would you link arms with me? Would you link arms with the elders of this church? Would you strive for unity in this church? Would you build relationships with one another around Christ? Would you do that? Do I hear an amen? Have you all gone to sleep? Good. You're with me. That's great. Well, may God bless this word to your hearts as it has, he's blessed it to my heart. And if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, please come on down at the end after the final song and, and there's, there'll be a couple of folks here to speak with you. Barbie and I will stay down here as well. We'd just love to share with you how you can come to know the Lord Jesus. If you're, if you're struggling with unity in your life, come talk to us. I'm I'm meant to be here as the pastor of discipleship, which is really just a way of saying I want to help you to disciple one another. So just come, but I'll help you to to work those things out, and uh, we'll grow, and we'll grow in unity, and, and, and our worship to God will be just that much sweeter, and the blessing of God will be just that much greater. Join me in prayer.